0: Welcome to Christ for the Islands, a podcast of Oahu Theological Seminary, where we talk about theology and ministry geared towards those living in and serving churches throughout the Pacific Islands, though we still hope that our talks will enlighten, equip, and encourage the saints wherever they may live, because we'll ultimately be talking about divine truth, which is applicable to all people for all times and all places. My name is David Larson, and I'll be your host. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Ben Moore in Iaea Heights here on Oahu. I've been able to get to know Ben for about the past year, year and a half or so. And one thing that um, strikes me about him is his clear and apparent humility as he gets together with other church leaders and as he serves uh, within the greater body of Christ. And I think it's always most enjoyable when we, I get to hang out and learn from those who emulate Uh, Christ's humility. So I'm super pleased and eager to learn from Ben. So thanks for joining us and being willing to share on this episode of Christ for the Islands. Yeah, thank you, David. It's good to be here. So given this podcast is geared for the islands in the Pacific, more specifically the Hawaiian Islands, and to allow people on the mainland to get a glimpse of the ministry happening in the islands, I would really like to hear just your story of how you came to Hawaii.
1: Yeah, so I've been here on Oahu for 12 years. I moved here from Seattle, and I was in between jobs and was looking to continue a career in teaching, and uh, my my childhood pastor, uh, Paul Shuler, um, had just moved out here to be the pastor at um, Uh, the Presbyterian church that John Kim is now the pastor of. Oh, uh, city church, city church Honolulu. Yep. And, um, he called me up and said, Ben, do you want to come out to Hawaii? I'll pay for your plane ticket. Just paint the inside of my house in return. So I said, sure. So I came out, um, loved Hawaii. It was my first time here and, uh, ended up interviewing at Trinity Christian school. In kailua and got a job um, teaching sixth grade and ended up just staying uh, here canceled my return flight back to the mainland and just all the doors were opening uh, to stay here so i stayed here um, well i I worked at at trinity for eight years total and um, really enjoyed my time there. met my wife at Trinity and got involved with the Anglican Church here on Oahu called Christ the Foundation Anglican Church and I was ordained as a deacon in the Anglican Church uh, 11 years ago and I found a really cool relationship between uh, serving in the church uh, as a deacon and then my role in education. And about five, six years ago, our church started a um, educational program called St. Benedict Hall. And it's a hybrid school, so we meet three days on campus. And then uh, two days, all the kids are at home with their families doing homeschooling. And so, We started it, yeah, six years ago with 29 kids, and now we've got upwards of 95. And so I serve as the program director, and we have 12 teachers. And um, so it's kind of a full school program for three days of the week. Um, So that's kind of what I do now.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Ben. I mean, um, I I, I don't want to assume that you know, there's a ton of listeners that are from the Anglican tradition. So when people from lower church traditions, lower church traditions that, you know, for example, where I grew up in, um, they might hear the term deacon and they might think of, uh, you know, the title of like table waiter or just those who deal with the church budget, the numbers, and um, those who take care of the, the, the building facilities and property side of things. And while those things might come under the responsibility of a deacon in the Anglican tradition, you know, being aware of all things happening in the church, um, it's my understanding that a deacon in the Anglican church is often more what people might see in the lower church tradition as a pastor. Is that somewhat fair?
1: Yeah. It's like an assistant pastor, maybe. Um, So deacons historically, you know, have... uh, been teachers preachers working with the poor um, I think Saint Francis of Assisi was a deacon <laughs> um, so yeah they're not in charge of running a church in the same way as a a presbyter uh, would but um, yeah historically deacons are part of you know an ordained ministry for life and uh, it's kind of part of Part of my vows part of my role identity work in the church um, so yeah it's it's definitely more than just a volunteer position you do for a few months or a year or something um and it it definitely changes too it's we kind of joke that deacons are like uh swiss army knives they kind of fill in wherever they they're needed at different times and seasons of the church life so um I've, yeah, done lots of different things as a deacon, Um, but yeah, right now primarily my work as a deacon is running the school.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think just uh, the topic and office of deacon is just such an interesting topic to me, and yeah, I hope one day we actually have a a discussion more on um, the diaconate, Um, but I mean, you just kind of mentioned it right now that there is uh, one of your primary roles as a deacon is the school, uh, St. Benedict's Halls. And if, if I refer to it as SBH to any of the listeners, that's what, it, that's what I'm referring to, the school, St. Benedict Hall. So I, I guess, how would you describe um, the relationship and the function of being a deacon and what you do at the school? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've really found that the diaconal ministry fits well. With this role in education. And we, we understand deacons as a bridge between the world and the church, working in the world, yet still pastors, clergy in the church, in kind of a unique way that, that presbyters um, aren't. And so um, the intention of SBH has been to be a ministry and a mission. Of the local church in the community, and so it's really an extension of the life and rhythms and culture uh, of the church in the broader community. So my role as a deacon in the church, you know, um, just naturally then works out as as a ambassador, representative of that in the broader community. So, yeah, in our tradition. Uh, clergy wear the clergy collars and so at at school I'm always in my clergy collar greeting parents you know meeting with with new folks Um, so it's just kind of part part of my role and all the kids you know call me Deacon Ben and so it's it's a very integrated um, role between the two. I I think it was last year I'd have to go back but
0: you wrote Uh, a a really intriguing article on the Gospel Coalition Hawaii chapter, specifically on how the church should recover its vision for education. Could you just give a quick sketch of what you mean in saying that the church should recover its vision for education? Is this just the church being involved in the education of the children under their care, or can, can you just describe what you mean by the church recovering its vision for
1: education? Yeah. No, I think this is so important and something that uh, the church has lost. Um, So yeah, first I would say the church does have a responsibility um, as a community to give her children a thick, rightly ordered education. Um, And every education is, is predicated on an anthropology. What do we think humans are? And how do we form, shape, encourage people towards that end? So a Christian anthropology seeks to order the desires and loves of the soul towards God, love of neighbor, love of God, uh, to rightly worship um, God. And so the church, um, you know, has a responsibility to to bring along the next generation into that love. Um, and it's going to take more than just a Sunday morning. Um, it's it's a whole life um, enculturation that, that needs that. And we found that, you know, two-thirds of kids growing up in the church today walk away from their faith when they leave their parents' house. And I think it's... It's kind of an alarm bell that whatever model we have currently <laughs> isn't working, um, and we need to really think um, our our Christian formation of our kids um, in a new light. You know, um, how do we get our kids to really love uh, the Lord through culture, through a, a thick Christian culture of worship and feasting and music and dancing, poetry. Um, in a close-knit community uh, where you're really known and you know others in a, in a deep way, not a, not a superficial way. So, yeah, I think the church has a responsibility to, to nurture a more mature and resilient faith for our children uh, as they, they set out into the world. Uh, secondly, I would say that the institutional church um, shouldn't abdicate this responsibility uh, to other parachurch organizations. And that's something we've seen more in the last century in church history. Um, and we can talk about kind of the history of, of the relationship between church and school later. But um, yeah, I think, I think part of that recovery of vision is recognizing the role and responsibility of the institutional church to make it a priority for um, focusing on, hey, everybody, we need to raise our kids in a deep, thick um, Christian culture, um, and not just say, okay, we'll just hire it out for somebody else to do and take care of, and it's not really the job of the church to worry about it at all. Um, Ultimately, it is the, the responsibility of parents Right, that's clear in Scripture. You know, parents raise up your children in the love and admonition of the Lord, and the church ought to be supportive and partnering with parents in that um, in that effort and call. And then finally, and thirdly, I would say the Christian schools um, need the theological accountability of the church. When you separate out the church. Um, from the Christian school and they both are working kind of in their own silos. Uh, what we've seen over the last century is the Christian schools um, have a lot of temptations, right? Of, of kind of uh, making accommodations to the culture, um, progressive theology, progressive ideology, uh, these compromises, working themselves in uh, to the culture and, and even in <clears throat> church run schools like Episcopal schools and Catholic schools, we've seen the same thing as soon as they start to separate the centrality of worship and the, of the church in the school. And if, as long as it becomes just kind of this extra institution, that's, that's making money, <laughs> frankly, for the church, um, there's not going to be that, that, uh, vibrancy that is really a possibility and potential. So um, yeah, I think those those kind of three there. Uh, the church has a responsibility to give her children rightly ordered education. Uh, the church can't abdicate that towards kind of other people to take care of, and that the school the church, Christian school needs the church in a partnership for for a, a vibrant and robust, Orthodox theology.
0: Yeah, and I mean, um, this is just kind of, as you were talking, it's kind of clicking in my head. I mean, why wouldn't a church want to invest in the education of those under their care? Um, I mean, as any good pastor already knows, um, not only should they, you know, preach to their flock on Sunday, but a lot of people go to 40, 40 plus hour work weeks and their, you know, pastors' jobs are to teach others, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not only within, you know, uh, Sunday or Wednesday night, um, but uh, as they go into the world, what are they supposed to do? And I, so just making a lot more sense for me as I am thinking about it is why wouldn't a, chur- a church want to be heavily um instrumental in children's education. And I mean, if a church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry in their everyday life, why wouldn't we want to do that for children as well? Um, so, so that's just really, um, at least enlightening to me, it is in one sense, it's really common sense. And yet, um, I think you're right that we, we don't always get a good picture of that. Um, and in thinking of like good pictures, one of the th- reasons why I really enjoyed your article on the gospel coalition um, was you just gave like a a few examples of church history of a meaningful partnership between church and education. So could you just give us some of those pictures of what this looked like throughout church history?
1: Yeah. The, um, the history is really a history of the church's growing realization of the power of schools to enculturate and pass on the faith and we don't see a lot of schools in the Apostolic era or Patristic era, really early Church. Um, the Romans and the Greeks knew the power of of schools and education, right? And Augustine was formed in that Saint Augustine was formed in one of those schools, but um, we don't really see like intentional Christian schools until Charlemagne and Alcuin.
0: And sorry, for those who don't know Char- Charlemagne, when, when did he live?
1: Yeah, around the 800s. So he was um, a king that really, um, I think he was like in France, uh, the 800s. He really um, championed education as an important part of making his kingdom uh, more fully <laughs> part of the kingdom of God. He wanted that, that integration. And he required education be provided in all the monasteries and all the cathedrals um, in his realm, which was kind of unheard of at that time. And his intent was to quote, uh, so that children can learn to read, that psalms, notation, chant, computation, and grammar be taught. So kind of both... um, the psalms, the worship of the Lord, and this kind of reading, writing, computation uh, be taught. So after that, um, it became more commonplace for the cathedrals to be centers of learning. So maybe not in every village in medieval Europe, but the cathedrals were kind of these centers um, that would host a school for, for students. Um, but it wasn't common for, for the normal average person to, to have access to, to Christian education, other than what they maybe got at home, until the printing press, right? And that changed everything for everybody. Um, and so during the reformational era, you have all these texts being um, circulated throughout Europe and all the different Protestant Denominations and entities were also starting schools, like right? the Lutherans were starting schools, <laughs> the Calvinists were starting schools, um, so that they could train their kids in what they believed was right theology. Right. And even the Catholics had kind of a boom of, um, new schools, uh, that were started during this time, uh, that corresponded with the printing press, right. All these things kind of came together, but, um, having Christian schools from that point on was, was really important for the church. And then kind of skipping ahead um, West American Westward expansion, you know, you hear stories of, of uh, pioneers, they build their log cabin and then the community's first thing that they build is the church that they use and double up as a one room schoolhouse during the week. It was just kind of like, this is what was important um, for, for Christians. Um, in the missional era, uh, you know, in the 1800s, especially as, as Christendom kind of spread around the world, um, we have so many examples of, of missionaries going to start churches and schools at the same time. And they recognize that serving the community, coming in and serving a community, uh, can be best done in the immediate by um, uh, giving opportunities for the, the children of that community an education. It, it's kind of an immediate need and gift <laughs> to a community. Uh, so we, yeah, we see this church and school being planted uh, simultaneously. And a great example is actually here in Hawaii, right that the first missionaries came to the islands in eight, around 1820 and they didn't just plant churches, they planted schools. And they had tons of these mission schools all through the islands. And um, virtually all the children in the kingdom of Hawaii were enrolled in one of these schools in the 1820s, 1830s. And by uh, kind of a remarkable story, by the mid of the middle of the 1800s, uh, 95% of the population in the Kingdom of Hawaii were literate. And the Kingdom of Hawaii had the highest literacy rate of any nation in the world. If I recall, it was Queen Ka'ahumanu
0: who yeah. was also not just a proponent of the missionaries doing this, but being a proponent of um, education coming along with that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, this was a critical first missional step um, as the spread of the gospel uh, goes forth to, to um, have schools in which to, to raise up a generation that, that um, understands and lives, lives that out. And really, a generation after that, um, we, we see that the monarchs of Hawaii, you know, had at that point um, become Christian. And King Liholiho and Queen Emma were faithful Christians, and they continued um, that movement of growth of Christianity and schooling, education, um, hospitals, kind of the, the outworking of the gospel in the islands, um, in a really unique way, so then getting to the the twentieth century, um, we really see the rise of the parachurch organization for the first time, where it's not connected to a institutional church that's you know preaching the word on a regular basis, giving the sacraments. Um, it's more of these um, amorphous <laughs> groups of Christians who, who may go to different churches getting together to do different um, projects and initiatives like summer camps or um, the YMCA you know be an example um, things for society that they could do in collaboration with each other but they weren't connected to an ecclesial body so um Schools were part of this as well kind of and and those would be independent independent schools um, as opposed to parochial schools. so a parochial school would be a school connected to the institution of the church. Uh, parochial comes from the word parish, a parish school um, and an independent school independent Christian school doesn't have that connection to the to the church ecclesial authority at all and um yeah so i'd say but by, by the 1980s 1990s there's kind of a drop-off of new um uh, parochial schools being started and more and more christian schools are getting started that are independent and there's we kind of see a a drop off of prioritization and vision of the church to be involved directly in education. And instead there's more focus put on the youth group model. And that's maybe the model that you and I grew up with in the church, right? The church provides a one day a week youth group activity, have a little message, uh, try to, you know, promote uh, relationships and, and drink a can of Coke through a sock. Exactly. Yep. And um, but but again, like I mentioned before, we're finding that this this model is really inadequate for for deep Christian formation.
0: You, you, and you're saying it's, it's not wrong. It's it's good to have, you know, children focus or youth focus. It's just incomplete.
1: It's incomplete. It's not not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. So um, not only is biblical literacy in that kind of formation very, very weak, um, children just don't know their Bibles uh, in the same kind of way that a... um, being involved in a school setting where you're learning scripture and learning the the those more obscure uh, parts of scripture, um, you're just not going to find that. And so, yeah, as as good as as youth groups are, this is no dig at youth groups, but um, I would just say it's inadequate for a Christian formation. And like I mentioned, two thirds of our kids growing up in the church leaving, uh, yeah, should just raise some questions about the model. Um, so yeah, it's my conviction that we that we need churches to re-engage with education and offer, at least offer, formation beyond a youth group model.
0: You know, if a church, a gospel-preaching church, is to have, um, whether their own school or partnering with the school, my, my assumption is that you're saying it should be a Christian school, given they're be- being a uh, biblically literate Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I I guess my question, and this is a really surface level question, um, but just, and, and everyone who listens probably knows this, is that just because a school is labeled a Christian school doesn't actually make it a Christian school. So my question would be, what makes a Christian school actually be a Christian school, or in other words, what makes a school Christian?
1: Yeah, I'll first, first off say that a Christian school isn't just a pseudonym for safe. <laughs> a lot of parents will want to send their kid to a Christian school because in their minds, oh, that's the safe place, and we'll pay extra money to put my little Johnny into a safe place. Um, but yeah, it, it's so much more than that. Um Christian schools, I think all Christian schools would aim to provide some sort of moral, theological framework, teach uh, the Bible stories um, to the kids, share the gospel with their with their students, um, And that's all good and, and right. Uh, but kind of like what we've been talking about, the head, given the headwinds, um of secular liberalism that our kids are facing. Um, yeah, I think having young Christians be meaningfully connected to the church through their education is, is important. To be a Christian is to be connected to the life and community and rhythms of the church. You cannot sustainably uh, live a vibrant Christian life disconnected from the church. And we need, to, we need to make that connection more explicit and clear for, for our kids. Um, so yeah, a Christian school ought to, to be giving the experience to students of, of that integration of life and community and worship and prayer um, in the educational, in the daily, you know, nine to five of the week as much as we can. Um, so, yeah, all this seeks to place students in a culture, a culture of lived out faith, uh, a focus on Christ. And in our context, in my context, uh, working at St. Benedict, we are a ministry of the Anglican Church churches here on the island. And so uh, one of the, the first commitments we had when we started our school was we're going to have... Uh, a holy communion service every Wednesday morning. And that meant that the other presbyters, the other pastors would come and make that a priority to like serve the sacrament of communion (laughs) to the school community. And it's been really interesting. It's been really um, fruitful. It's been been life-giving to have that as a priority at the school. And it does mean that a lot of our students don't take communion because they're not baptized and they get blessed by by a pastor every week until they are. But um, it gives the kids an imagination for, oh, if I get baptized, then I can participate in the in the communion service. And um, I want to I want that. It's, It's cultivating that desire to, to participate in the life of the church and in Christ. Um, so yeah, I think all that to say being connected in, in our context to the Anglican church gives us an opportunity to, to root our students in the sacraments of the Christian life in a way that non-parochial schools cannot.
0: Right on. And I mean, yeah, that, that imagination actually, um, there's going to be another episode with Todd Morikawa, which you you know him well, and where he also talked about, you know, you made that uh, image um, or referred to the image of you know, withholding communion or the Lord's table um, from the unbaptized. And it actually produces a longing for that, right? And um, so I think that's, that's a beautiful picture. You're not just merely withholding it so that they can be more, oh, I want to partake of the service. It's you're, you're withholding it because they haven't had that initiatory rite of baptism. And so, so yeah, I, I love that picture. Um, now getting into, you know, the more practical nitty gritty. Um, Nacho Libre is coming into my mind right now. Um, in, in, in reality, a number of churches just don't have the finances or resources um whether, you know, um, buildings or persons to, um, you know, be the facility or act as a faculty of the school. And, and so they just can't create their own school. So what does it look like for a church to have a meaningful partnership with those schooling, the children in the church, whether they, they, they can create their own school or they can't?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it, it has to start with uh, education being a priority, right? If that conversation is happening within the church leadership of how can we prioritize this, given our context, given our limitations, given our opportunities, um, then, yeah, that's kind of the first step is is making it a priority, seeing the need for it for our kids, uh, and the responsibility the church has for that. But beyond that, you know, I think one thing we've found is Is running a hybrid educational program has a lot of uh, unique benefits that a conventional five day week uh, school um, has. So, uh, hybrid schools, you know, they're very nimble administratively, Um, there's not a lot of overhead, Um, you can make it really affordable, right? At least half or a third of the price of a Of a private school um, partnering with parents Um, yeah it's just it's kind of a newer model in the last really 15 years that um, is exploding on the mainland um, and people are just trying different alternatives but these this hybrid model I think is something to explore for churches but uh, beyond that um, starting a church co-op for the homeschool families in the church once a week. Um, there's lots of, lots of kind of parachurch programs, like Classical Conversations or things like that that are out there. But for the church to say, we want to also like, try to piece together something that, that, that's uh, prioritizing the worship of, of God. Um, for our kids in community. Um, and then, yeah, if that's not, that not feasible, uh, again, that priority of, of being involved uh, could mean encouraging folks in the, in the church to be involved as teachers in the local schools, um, or being open to joining the Christian School's Board of Trustees Um, so any way that they can participate, the life of the church being participating more, uh, intentionally in, in the life of, of the Christian schools around.
0: Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. I have a bonus question for you, especially as, you know, you've been talking about education and help, help me recall, um, SBH does have like a literature or classics. Um, so, so, I mean, I've recently been uh, more introduced to fiction. And so I guess I just have a question on this for you is what is your favorite fiction book of all time? And what's a wonderful lesson from that book for the Christian life?
1: So I don't know if this is the one time all time favorite, but it's the book that came to mind when you asked. Uh, but it's a book called *Loris* by Eugene Vodolansk. and it's uh, probably written in the last ten or fifteen years. So it's a, it's a more modern book. Um, originally written in Russian and then tr- translated into English, uh, and the author's still living. But it gives a really compelling uh, pre-modern vision of the Christian life that's enchanted and it's a world saturated with God's presence, um, that kind of explores the faith of, uh, of Christianity and life, not flattened by kind of our transactional approach to life and technology. And, um, yeah, that, that world that we live in is so prevalent that we don't even see it anymore until we're, exposed to something different kind of pre (laughs) pre pre-modern and so i just love that book about um yeah how how it kind of opens up the enchantment of the world again um to kind of to find it again for for us today
0: yeah and i mean just even thinking on that uh with this you know christian vision of the church being involved in children's education i mean you get to teach kids how to read uh, fiction books or classic works in in uh, light of what the Bible teaches, and so you can you can learn uh, even from uh, secular authors or pagan authors, whoever they may be, is w- within this type of school setting. Your church can actually train up children how to see mm-hmm. God in in the world, whether it be uh, fiction, nonfiction works, so on and so forth. But Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it uh, for you taking time out of your day to come talk with me and share share a bit more about the church being involved in children's education. It's just something I haven't really, even though I used to go to a a private school when I was kindergarten to eighth grade, I haven't really thought too deeply. I've thought about it, but not too deeply. And especially like, oh yeah, this is something the church should do. Uh, It's not just something that individuals within the church um, should, you know, might have to send their kids or might send their kids to you it's something that the church really should be involved so i really appreciate it and i hope um this discussion fosters further discussion between churches whether churches partnering together to create a school whether here in the islands or on the mainland so thank you for joining us today
1: thanks david and i love love this vision of this podcast and kind of bringing theology and, and theological ideas to the islands Well, I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Ben Moore. If you'd like to see
0: his blog post on the Gospel Coalition Hawaii, uh, I'll put it in the description below. And we hope that this episode encourages you and causes you to think further about how churches can partner with schools and how they can care for the education of children within your own congregation. Again, this is a podcast of Oahu Theological Seminary, and we hope that our conversation today will encourage you to grow in faith, hope, and love as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.